Welcome back to the Irish Mythology Podcast. I'm Stephanie Nihirni. And I'm Marcus O'Hishkeen. So we hope you're keeping well and the lockdown hasn't been too trying for you. And if you're in Ireland and making the most of the five kilometre radius in which you can move for your daily exercise, uh, keep an eye out for any blooming hawthorn bushes to obviously enjoy their beauty. And of course, always avoid encroaching on the personal space of any fairy folk who might happen to be congregating around them. And it's always important not to aggravate the fairies, whether they're the good ones or the malevolent kind. And of course, remember to wash your hands when you get home, and that's just to keep the coronavirus at bay, nothing to do with the good people at all. Yeah, I'm not sure washing your hands is going to prevent you from being a changeling, but anyway, we'll, we'll carry on. <laughs> uh, just by way of an update, our Patreon is now up and running, and we'll be talking a bit about some of the bonus content that you can access to or that you get access to, sorry, by financially supporting the Irish Mythology podcast at the end of the show. Yeah, there's lots of good stuff there to make it worth your while. And while we're on the subject, shout out to some patrons who are going to be doing this from time to time. So today it's a big thank you to Moonser, aka Aidan Mooney, uh, and Tanya Fiennes, who became patrons last week. So just want to give you a bit of a recap on our last episode. And if you haven't listened to it yet, it's really worthwhile going back and doing that first because this today's story is actually part two of last week's uh, particular story. So where we left off, Shreng, who is the champion of the Furbolg, was sent to investigate news of a mysterious tribe who came from the sky in ships disguised as dark clouds. And he encounters, along this uh, journey, he encounters Brez, who is a beautiful looking warrior who is acting on behalf of his tribe, the Two A Day. So Brez tells Shrang that his people want half of the island and the Furbolg can keep the other half. So after they swap weapons, as was the, the custom, the two strike up a bit of a friendship and seem to be commit, committed to a peaceful resolution. So our, our story today takes up from there. But just before we continue, just thought I'd mention that a friend of ours, Paul Reynolds, who is not the RTE news reporter, just important to point out, um, so he, he was listening to the show while he was out for a walk there last week and pointed out something that could cause a bit of confusion and that's the name of the god people, the two a day. Yeah, so if you're thinking in terms of English spelling and pronunciation, it can sound like a bit like the instructions on a prescription, you know, take two a day or something, but uh, but it's actually Irish Mark, that that was Mark's joke. I didn't like that, uh, but it's but it's actually Irish. I think so it was actually Paul's joke, but well, anyway, uh, we'll we'll struggle on. It's it's an Irish word, and it's uh, tua is the first word, and day. So that's spelled T U R or T U A T H, and then D E with an accent called a fada on the E. So tua in this context means people, and day means God. So. Effectively, what the two a day are, are the god people. And this also seems like a good place to mention the use of the term two a day danon instead of just the two a day uh, from the medieval period on. We mentioned this last week and said we'd come back to it. So while it's not exactly clear where the danon element actually came from, most modern commentators will tell you that it derives from the goddess Danu, the chief god of the pantheon. But there are two problems with this. Firstly, 
up until the 10th century, there are only, they are only ever referred to as the two a day if they're given a collective name at all. Um, and secondly, there are no stories concerning the goddess Danu. In fact, there's no mention anywhere of a goddess called Danu until after the two a day become the two a day Danon. So the obvious reason for a name change, though, is that actually Christian writers were pretty uncomfortable calling them the god people. So they came up with something else. And now that that's cleared up, uh, let's get on with part two of the dawning of the day. It is the sixth day of Bialtana when Shrang stands before the elders. Among comrades, he stands unarmed. The crescent of seats of the council chiefs wraps around as he tells his tale. Each face, solemn, attentive, straining to believe this fantastic account of the strongest shields, sharpest spears and broadest blades of the two a day and the magic they wield. Shrang pleads for peace, for his people to cede half of the land without blood being spilled. But, the chiefs whisper, shake heads en masse, disappointment conveyed. They lock eyes with Shrang, the many become one. Yokit speaks, we shall not yield. At Ma Rain in Brefna, in a cowhide tent, Nuada, the warrior chief of the two a day, reclines on a golden throne. He tugs his lush red beard and with a disconcerted look, harumphs. <sighs> the cause of his displeasure is the scene at the Fir Bullock Court, seen through an enchanted mist. Though it is three score miles away by foot, it seems close enough to reach out and touch. Brez, by Nuda's right hand, shakes his golden mop of hair and with some emphasis insists. Shrenk surely is a nobler soul than this Okud son of Urk. Nuda waves his arm. Enough! The scene fades. The mist withdraws. Before Nuada's throne, where he watched Shrang plead, stands three maidens. Mischief flickers across each face, and cunning spills forth from their eyes. And though darkness screams from their very soul, beauty flows from their outer form. And yet, from each head grows a mane the likes of which is known only to the nightmares of the mortal soul. From Maka, a vine of frenzied flame. From Nyawan, cascading falls of blood. From Bave, a starless winter night. Maka, through flames, declares a stupid, unworthy chief, his pride will be his people's end. Nyawan pauses and replies, indeed unless we three phantom queens should bring about his end. In protest, Nuada's palm extends before his war-conditioned face. Not yet, still, a consensus might be reached. But perhaps, dear consorts of calamity, you can be the catalysts of peace. 
the babe's eyes sparkle. Her neck extends and head tilts to the side. Her lips divide, her mouth expands. Not quite a yawn, though not a smile either. She speaks. We shall bring chaos to their hearth. The chaos will drown them in fear. Their fear will lead to calamity and calamity will bring us peace. Nuda sighs. It's just the thing he had in mind, though his concern remains. What if this act hardens Okud's will to fight? Will darkness spread across this land? Will her valleys run red with blood? Before the chief can change his mind, the three maidens transform. Two skullcrows and a raven fly from the tent, take to the sky and head southeast to Tara. Brez rests a hand on Nuada's arm. Fear not, great one. If battle should be preordained, then so too, at its end, a new chief shall rule. Okud will fall in either case. The three birds of mayhem fly at breakneck pace across the green and pleasant land. Their three selves now single-minded, united, their mission to foment upheaval, to deliver the night before the dawn of a new and glorious age the age of the gods. They speed over Brefna's rolling hills. They pass lakes and mounds of Meath to Brega, the land of fertile plains where the Furbulg prepare for battle. At Tara, an army musters down below. Spears and swords are handed out, still warm from the smith's great metal forge. The battle crows gain speed and circle above the unsuspecting mortal force. The raven furiously flaps her wings in spiral form and flies against the sun. The skull crows mirror their sister's dance. They make the same spiral circuit, collecting moisture from the sky. Vapour fills the lanes they cut through the sky and falls, casting the army down below into darkness. Shouts of distress climb from the fur bullock ranks to the path of the Phantom Three. The next part of their plan can proceed. Through shrieks and calls they cast their spell. The mist swells and thickens, becomes cloud. And in that cloud they kindle flames that fall as rain. The three then glide and watch with an artisan's pride as the chaos unfolds below. Warriors combust, running, flailing, spears in hand. They dash their weapons against one another, wounds gaping wide. The soldiers' terrifying screams are so sharp, so loud, that they are heard upon the wind in all five provinces of Ireland. Amidst the great catastrophe, Shrang calls out to the best of his men. One by one, he hands them pails and instructs them, Get to the wells! Quench the flames! One by one, they brave the flames, running tiptoed through embers of smoking bone and scraps of burning flesh. Shrang, with blistered feet, arrives at the well of the dark eye and thrusts his vessel into its cavern. From above, he hears the war birds screech louder than before. A new rain falls, sanguine and thick. Droplets congeal on his face and his bucket fills with blood. The battle crows cackle and call but don't allow success to stall their work. There will be no reprieve. 
Oakwood watches in horror from the doorway of the druid's mound as blood and flame fall from the sky. Regrouped here, the tribe is safe here. They cannot leave until their sorcerers defeat the phantom power. Dressed in white robes, the druids, Fahach, Grahach, Ignahach and Sesurd dance, chant, incant, cast spell after spell after spell. For three days and three nights, nobody sleeps. Until at last, the enchantment seeds. Then, Okud and the sheltered few search through the smoking rooms for survivors. And their anguish briefly turns to joy when they see that Shreng and his cohort have survived. But that joy is short-lived. Tara, the great sovereign home, has fallen. Okud, the chief, calls to his people. He sounds his battle cry. We will fight to the last man, to the last bead of sweat, to the last drop of blood. Send messengers to the four corners. Tell everybody you see, we will not yield. The Phantom Queens, on hearing the fur bullock defiance, fly back to a force now prepared for war, already marching to fortify a mountain defence out west, to Kuma, where they'll make their stand. Okay then, well that took a dark turn after the relatively hopeful ending to part one. Um, and it's worth pointing out that all the hassle coming the way of the fur bulk stems from a classic example of management not listening to frontline workers. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, absolutely. Shrang is out there taking the risks, sussing out the two a day and he's the weapons expert. And undoubtedly he's he's the one that's going to be leading the battle charge. But it doesn't really matter though, because he's not saying what the chiefs want to hear, so they've just they're just gonna ignore him anyway. Typical. Anyway, after um Shreng and Brez get back to their respective camps, things escalate quickly and the chances of a peaceful resolution diminish. But Nuda, the chief of the two a day, still wants to try and resolve things. Now, Nuda probably was a god of war, but he's not a god who revels in war as such. He has a sense of justice about him. And in that sense, he sort of resembles Tyr from the Asir pantheon in Norse mythology and maybe Maris in the Roman religion. But there's a lot more of his story to tell. So we're going to come back to him and those similarities in the next episode. So today we're actually going to focus on the main characters of our story in, in this episode, uh, namely Bave, Maha and Naun, uh, who Nuda asks to go and give the Furbolg a bit of supernatural encouragement to negotiate. Um, so, But in the old text we based the story on, the episode where they go to Tara and unleash their terror only takes up a paragraph or so, and it doesn't really go into much detail. Yeah, and um, I suppose before we... Continue on with that part, I do just want to make a little point about the pronunciation here. So there's a number of different resources on the internet regarding Old Irish pronunciation. Um, and I'm sure there were people who heard parts of the story and hear some of the names being pronounced and think 
that oh that doesn't that's not how I would have pronounced it or that's not how I was told it was pronounced or so on so I suppose just to bear in mind uh, there are there are guides to old Irish out there um and I mean we discussed it a bit on the last episode but I suppose it's we, we've taken one set of ways to pronounce it and we're going to try and stick with them and uh, that's not to say that the way you say it is wrong although it might be uh, <laughs> but no it's it's not to say that it's, you know it's it's definitely definitely how you pronounce it because obviously there are different dialects and so on yeah where, where I actually have looked at the old Irish pronunciation I've taken it mainly from Mark Williams book Ireland's Immortals which is really good and if you're interested in that stuff we were talking about earlier about the two a day and the two a day Danon and were they a pantheon that's that's your place to look really yeah so I mean I think in that book he would suggest that uh that Bay of is actually so it's spelled uh b-a-d-b-h and he would say that it's that's pronounced bow or uh, maybe I read that somewhere else, but I've gone with Bay of, yeah. which is I'll I'll put the in the show notes where that's from. But yeah, I would have thought that the um Bow was kind of a Ulster dialect pronunciation, Bave more of a kind of a Munster yeah. direction, maybe. Yeah. Sounds but the way. Anyway. anyway, to come back to the story uh, that we're actually telling, so we mentioned in the last episode that the first battle of Moitura is probably a medieval literary invention. And this might explain why this part of the story is passed over relatively quickly. As in other tales, uh, the deeds of these goddesses are elaborated on at great length. And so just for a reference and also to show a bit of solidarity, um, because you always end up having the difficult pronunciations, I'm going to have to <laughs> pronounce the names of those verbal sorcerers, I think, as well now. Um, so this, this is uh, the paragraph from the original text. It was then that Bave and Macha and Morrigan went to the knoll of the taking of the hostages and to the hill of summoning of hosts at Tara and sent forth magic showers of sorcery and compact clouds of mist and a furious rain of fire with a downpour of red blood from the air on the warriors' heads. And they allowed the Firbolg neither rest nor stay for three days and nights. A poor thing, said the Firbolg, is the sorcery of our sorcerers, that they cannot protect us from the sorcery of the two a day. But we will protect you, said Fahak, Nahak, Ignahak, and Cesard, the sorcerers of the Firbolg, and they stayed the sorcery of the two a day. Um, yeah, so that, that's quite compact, and they, they say so the word sorcery is repeated a lot of times, um, so I don't know if they had anybody proofread that. <laughs> Yeah, also uh, some interesting techniques being employed by uh, the the Morrigan or the Bay of there in terms of sleep deprivation. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> have been liberally applied by <laughs> by certain state authorities ever mm. since. But anyway, um, so you might have noticed another change we've made. So in the paragraph Marcus just read there, the names of the goddesses are Bay of Macha and Morrigan and elsewhere in the text they're referred to as the three Margina. But in the various stories that they actually appear in, the names vary. Uh, so Nebon, uh, which you used a completely different pronunciation there, but anyway, um, it's it's one of the three in some of them. And in, other, in others, there's a goddess called Anand. And I suppose this is a thing that you see quite often in Irish mythology, and it can sometimes make it difficult to 
kind of say this is the definitive like you can't say this is the definitive clear yeah. story because there'll always be different versions and different characters pop up and then the same character will pop up in another story but they'll have a different name um so yeah that's i, th- I think um interestingly so- some scholars of probably the ilk of um jeffrey keating you know these 18th century people who wrote uh, sprawling pseudo histories either him or somebody of it of that um milieu basically took anand and merged her with anna who is a very much associated with kerry yeah um there's there's two mountains called the pap savannah meaning anna's breasts down there that you can look at the if you're the paps yeah it's a hyper i think pretty sure it's a hyperno english word for was, boobies was your real west <laughs> yeah. but anyway yeah and then some somebody took that and went uh anu and then merged it with danu of the non-existent to the day oh, yeah but um anyway in the stories of the ulster cycle um that revolve around the exploits of the famous kuhulan the bave and the mar and the Morrigan are kind of interchangeable. They have the same relationship to to Cuchulain, and they're the provocateur pushing him to fight. And in one of the tales, uh, Tokmark Amara, also known as the Wing of Emer, uh, the Morrigan is specifically referred to as on Bay of Caha, the, the battle crow or crow of battle. Yeah, so Maka and Nevon in the Ulster Cycle, on the other hand, are distinct characters with different roles. And Maka, uh, or Maka casts a sickness on the men of Ulster, uh, while Nevon creates confusion and chaos among the ranks of armies, causing them to turn their weapons on each other. And um, actually, just worth mentioning on Maka as well, that sometimes the Maka, Ulster Cycle Maka, is considered a different character, but I don't really think um, she is because she has that similar kind of Maragina-type role there. She casts casting that sickness on them, but uh, I think the reason for it is because in the Lerer Goala, she's killed off in a, you know, but I I don't think that was originally, um, that originally happened. So anyway, to maintain a bit of consistency in the stories, uh, that we tell in the podcast, we're going to stick with one version of the three Morrigina. And even though the Ulster Cycle is later in the chronology than the saga, the stories in it are older. So we've gone with the versions of these characters that you'll find there. So in fact, the stories of the Ulster Cycle are probably the oldest tales from Irish mythology that survive today. Yeah, so you've you've probably, if you're listening at home, you've probably heard of the Morrigan already. She's really popular with modern pagans and on witch Instagram. Uh, she's one of the more famous characters of Irish mythology. Actually, if you search on Instagram, well, if you search, if you're on Instagram first, please subscribe to our account. It's at Irish mythology. But if you look at the hashtag, the Morrigan on Instagram you'll see a huge amount of really cool illustrations and uh, things where you know people will invoke the the Morrigan in, in various ways and you know some very interesting very cool illustrated tarot cards using the Morrigan and stuff so a lot of people will be familiar with the Morrigan in kind of pop culture as well um she crops up in literary versions of Irish mythology and in young adult and children's fiction. So, you know, you see the, the Hounds of Morrigan, uh, or the Hounds of the Morrigan, sorry, by Pat O'Shea is kind of a famous example of the latter. 
Yeah, and she's referenced in other ways in pop culture. For example, in George R.R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series that the TV show Game of Thrones is based on, one of the noble houses is called House Morrigan of Crow's Nest. Now, it's spelt with an E instead of an A there at the, at the end, but that's obviously a, a nod to herself and the connection with crows. And also their sigil is a crow in it. But anyway, the most convincing theory on the name the Morrigan or the Morrigan is that it means Phantom Queen. Yeah, so basically the Mor component of the name is said to stem from a Proto-Indo-European word signifying terror, giving it a shared root with the Mare part of Nightmare. Uh, while the Regan, are, you know, it's the second part of the word, while that element is related to the Irish word for a monarch. So re, which is or I, father, you know, father is the accent on the I, meaning king, or reen or ban reen for queen. And although there are other theories such as great queen or sea queen, um, the phantom queen one is most likely because it really suits her character. It's who she is. She's supposed to be both, you know, beautiful, but also terrifying. And it's probably why she speaks to that kind of, um, that young, uh, kind of young women on which Instagram it's, she, she's a real kind of kick-ass kind of woman who's not afraid to display her sexuality, but also like, you know, dominates men and all these types of things. She reckon. Tell me more about why women <laughs> are interested in this. Wall ears. Well, I just... There you go, there you go. There's, There she is. There's a Morgan. Anyway. <laughs> go on. Anyway, so she's a shapeshifter and she's a weaver of diabolical magical spells and she's associated with death, particularly death on the battlefield and she foretells death to those who are about to die, especially warriors. And in that respect, there's a similarity here with the Banshee who occurs in later folklore who has a thing with certain families and will cry out when one of them is going to die. Yeah, so she's a, she's, there's a real Grim Reaper vibe to the Morrigan. Actually, interestingly, in lots of parts of Ireland, and I've never heard of it outside of Ireland, but um, it's really, really common for people to think that if a bird flies into your house... Um, into your space that that means that someone's going to die and I think it goes beyond the you know people thinking oh one you know one magpie is bad luck it's like if a bird flies into your house that's it like people are on edge for yeah at least with the magpie you can say hello or give them a salute yeah. yeah but one of the things that's really interesting and it often gets overlooked though about the Morrigan is that one of her main roles is also as an instigator of change you know she's not just this kind of harbinger of doom she and her sisters, uh, because she's, you know, she's she's a sort of triple goddess. And we talked about this actually right back in the first episode when we talked about St. Patrick. We talked about the triple goddess. But, you know, the Morrigan, she and her sisters create chaos. But it's not chaos for chaos's sake. She's not just doing this for the crack of it. There's always a point to it. So because of her association with sovereignty, she looks upon bad rulers with disdain, really. 
and she uses her powers to usurp them and replace them with someone she considers much better. So you can almost associate her with periods in history where there's great change and chaos, which leads to some sort of new regime or some form of society. And in our story, she clearly doesn't think much of Oketh McGurk and is pretty determined, you know, that's it, he's done. He is going to lose his seat of power and it doesn't really matter what he does or says, he's finito. Her powers, though, they're not limited to what we would normally consider sorcery. She's really adept at using manipulation. She'll challenge chiefs and warriors, you know, goad them into fighting, and she'll use praise and insult to um, get them to do what she wants. And something she uses in the second battle of Moitura, which we'll come to later this year, and also in the Ulster cycle, but not in this first battle, is her sexuality. And I think that's probably another point in the mounting pile of evidence for the theory that the tale of the fight between the two a day and the Firbolg is a medieval Christian era creation. Yeah, so one of the things she does is sexually proposition characters and their response usually determines their fate. Uh, so if they sleep with her, they'll end up prospering. Uh, but if they say no, like Cucullin does in the Ulster cycle, their fate is sealed and bad things are going to happen, um, which raises um, really some quite problematic questions, probably in terms of yeah. consent. Uh, but yeah, that's that's how she's depicted in uh, some of these stories. So the picture that we're getting here is a goddess that's mainly associated with death, societal upheaval, sorcery, and sex and that gives us a clue pointing to the antiquity of this kind of goddess so in mesopotamian and babylonian myth there's a goddess called inanna um, also known as ishtar and firstly you might notice the similarity between the name inanna and anand who we mentioned uh one of the Maragina we mentioned earlier but there's more to it than just the name similarity inanna or ishtar was associated with death, sex, and actually divine justice. So her symbol was an eight-pointed star, which symbolised Venus, which looks like a bright star in the sky that, unlike all other stars, uh, rises twice in the day, symbolising descent into the underworld and then a return to the heavens. Yeah, and also um, in ancient Mesopotamia and Babylon, the, her eight-pointed star symbol was also uh, was often combined with the symbol for the moon god, which was a crescent moon, which is actually the origin of the star and crescent, which is prominent in Islam today, but also the symbol of Drogheda and Portsmouth and lots of these medieval port cities. And, and your kind of ears might have pricked up when I said moon god, because in a lot of ancient societies... The, the moon was actually a male god. Sometimes the sun was female. Um, Toth uh, was an Egyptian moon god. And I'm actually probably going to mention him in an episode down the line because he's got some similarities with the Dacta. But um, the main source for... The main source of written evidence about Inanna slash Ishtar is the 4,000-year-old Epic of Gilgamesh. Now... It was written in Mesopotamia, in an area today which uh, is part of southern Iraq. 
and it's considered to be the oldest surviving work of literature in the world, and only the pyramid texts are older as a, an example of religious texts. And in this story, Gilgamesh is propositioned by the goddess Inanna, but he spurns her advances, and in response, she sends the bull of heaven after him. Now, it doesn't unfold in exactly the same way as the cattle raid of Cooley, but there's a startling similarity between this exchange between Gilgamesh and Inanna and the one between Cúchulainn and the Morrigan, um, right down to the involvement of an enchanted bull. Hell has no fury like a goddess scorned. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the other mythological comparison with Morrigan figures that you might think of are the Valkyries in Norse mythology. So there are female divinities who come to the va- battlefield in Norse mythology to take the slain to Odin. Am I saying that right? Odin. Odin, sorry. Yeah. In Valhalla or to Freya in Folkvanger and are usually accompanied by ravens. Um, now the Valkyries only really have this like one role and aren't well developed characters in the surviving texts but they could you know they could potentially be the residue of earlier goddesses that were similar to the Morrigina. Um, there is however an interesting story from the Icelandic Njals saga which includes an account of wait for it the Battle of Clontarf. Yeah and I'm just going to read a an excerpt kind of the most kind of interesting part of this and this deals with um events leading up to the battle of Clontarf. It, it was i think good friday 1014 um and this obviously occurs on good friday as well so on good friday that event happened in kefness that a man whose name was darud went out he saw folk riding 12 together to a boar and there they were all lost to his sight he went to that boar and looked through the window slit that was in it, and saw that there were women inside, and they had set up a loom. Men's heads were the weights, but men's entrails were the warp and the weft. A sword was the shuttle, and the reels were arrows. I'm really into that loom. Yeah. <laughs> what would you uh, be making out of that? <laughs> uh, so... In the saga, this is a foreshadowing of the Battle of Clontarf. And what's interesting about this is that the women that Darud sees, uh, they bear similarities to Valkyries in some ways. But the element of foretelling doom is much more associated with Irish Morrigina type characters. So associated folklore characters like the Banshee and the Banshee or a washerwoman at the forge, you know, who's seen by the doomed warrior washing blood off clothes that actually look a bit like his clothes. In, in a further interesting twist, turning back to the Norse mythology, the Norns were female divinities who were depicted as weavers, and their role is actually to weave fate. So this Icelandic saga, and we, we'll post a link actually to the English language version in the show notes, it combines various kinds of female mythological characters from both both Irish and Norse mythology. So it's probably unsurprising when you consider that 62% of Icelandic maternal DNA has its roots in Ireland and Scotland. You know, there's going to be some kind of mixing and matching of mythological characters somewhere. I wonder where Bjork's ancestors are from. Kinnegad. <laughs> I heard. I thought it was Kylie Minogue's. And the Minogue's uh, from out that way. No way. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. Terminfacken. Yeah, Terminfacken. Clar. 
Aye, aye. So, actually, I, I only came across that story recently uh, via an article from 1928 called The Valkyrie Episode in the Njals Saga by a chap called Alexander Hargerty Krapp, K-R-A-P-P-E. And it's from a journal called Modern Language Notes. And in it, there's a collective term given for the different... Um, female divinities it discusses which is hags of slaughter and i i thought at the time you know that'd make a great name for an all-female metal band it's a class name i think i actually tweeted that out the other day and i think somebody is claiming it now so no way i was just about to say if you can play any instrument get in touch (laughs) join my band hags of slaughter it's a metal band no it's a bluegrass band doing covers of metal songs (laughs) Uh, that's probably actually better than, than than the straight metal Thanks for alienating, probably. There's a huge, <laughs> huge amount of mythology fans who are into metal as uh, well. So, like, apologies, apologies. I appreciate your genre. <laughs> Keep listening. Anyway. Anyway, you know, off in a different uh, direction. I've been recently doing a chronological rewatch of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and in a strange case of synchronicity, on the same night that I discovered that article about you know the Valkyrie thing. I was actually watching Avengers Age of Ultron. Now, people are probably there going, why Why is that relevant? But I was actually struck by the similarity between the Morrigan characters and Scarlet Witch. So at the start of the film, she's actually an enemy of the Avengers. She's been kind of, you know, misled about their intentions. And there's this part where she puts unsettling visions in, in their heads. So the first time I saw it, I, I actually didn't think beyond it being a tactic to confuse her enemies, which, of course, it does. But now, having seen the other films all the way up to Endgame, you see the visions uh, that she puts in her heads actually foreshadow things that happen in the later films. So, like, it's either the fate of the character who has the vision or the fate of people they care about. You know, like like Thor for kind of, has a kind of a cryptic vision that foresees what happens in Thor Ragnarok, for example. But I want to ask a question now and part of me always wonders about these goddesses. You know, are these women really prophets of doom though or are they just a bit more realistic about things? Like, are they looking at all of these heroes running around thinking they're the man, that they're invincible and these visions are almost like them saying, listen, stop now. If you keep going the way you're going, there's a very sticky end in store for you, you know? It's, it's, it's possible, yeah. I, although nobody ever listens to the warnings to get, they always keep going on regardless. Wow. <laughs> Same for us in the mortal realm then, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> um, anyway, uh, this, the, I suppose, look, this foreshadowing attribute isn't immediately apparent in the story from today's episode, and especially so in the original text. But the fire and blood that rained down on the fur bullock, uh, you know, very, very messy, but it does foreshadow the battle to come. And it's almost as if, you know, the writer felt obliged to include these characters due to their popularity, but wasn't a huge fan himself. So it ends up a bit of a kind of blink and you miss it moment. Um, but anyway, that's all the discussion we have time for today. And we'll, we'll take the story up again, part three of Dawning of the Day in a couple of weeks. But 
Before we go, we mentioned that our Patreon page is now up and running and we've already signed up our first patrons. If you've been enjoying the show so far, you might consider becoming a patron yourself. The Irish Mythology Podcast will always be free to listen to on the usual podcast platforms, but it's not free to make. Your financial support can help us keep making it and invest in things like additional recording equipment, recording at locations associated with the sagas, and eventually pay actors and crew to make full cast productions of the sagas you love. Now there's a range of benefits at different price tiers and for just €3 you can get early access to each episode, longer cuts of each episode from next month on, story scripts for every episode and links to art and maps so you can place yourself in the middle of the action. And each tier includes access to those benefits plus extras like bonus episodes, access to our Discord server where you can chat about Irish mythology with us and other patrons, live video Q&As and much more. So go and have a look there on patreon.com forward slash Irish mythology podcast. And you can find us on Twitter at Irish mythology P on Facebook, Irish mythology podcast on Instagram at Irish Mythology and on the World Wide Web at irishmythologypodcast.ie If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or another platform that includes ratings and if you like the show or even if you didn't like it, be generous. Just do us a favour and give us a five-star rating. It really helps us reach a wider audience. So stay safe, Slán. And listen, if you're on Tinder at home and you see a crow Swipe right, because if you don't, you never know what'll happen. <laughs> uh, so, slán, everybody. <laughs> slán, we'll see you next time on Irish Mythology Podcast. You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast, presented by Marcus O'Hishkeen and Stephanie Nihirni. Written and produced by Marcus O'Hishkeen. Music by Damiano Baldoni, Celtic Warrior, on an Attribution Creative Commons license.